Okay. Waiting for Dave. Oh, wait, I forgot to do my acting warm-ups. Okay, here we go. Okay, I'm, I'm fine. I saved your life. I was doing acting warm ups. <laughs> I know, I just wanted to hit you. <laughs> I hate you. Welcome to Nerd Zone History. I'm Brian Moriarty, and I am Dave McGuire. Thank you, Dave, for appearing with us. Appearing, yes, we were appearing on an audio podcast. Yes. I'm really just a hologram. <laughs> exactly. Move over, Tupac Shakur. It's a shame you can't see what's happening, because this is magic, what we're, we're witnessing right now. We make magic in this room. <laughs> and not to be confused with adult magic, it's legitimate magic. <laughs> what do you mean by adult magic? Are you talking about, like... You know the thing where like you put the two fingers and like you make the ring, oh. or you, like you move one finger over to the other hand. I'm doing this as if everyone can see it, <laughs> but it's a podcast, so you cannot. Yeah, Dave was just gesticulating with his hands, doing the the, the finger exchange the, or the, the word of the day. Gesticulate. Just if you watch Family Guy, go back to the moment where Jesus is going da 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 da, da and he's doing the magic act. So. Um, as you can tell, Eric Brickmont is not with us tonight. He is I on a him. break. So we want he's been working really hard. We want to give him a little bit of a break. So Dave has opted to sit on the next couple episodes. Mm-hmm. Thank you for being here, sir. Well, thank you for inviting me. I've uh, I've certainly missed the mic. I know. Uh, I, I've it's been a long time. I it's... think it's been the Oscar podcast is the last time when you were on the mic. Oh, that... no, no, no. It was the Nerds on Film. It was the uh, Animals and Movies that so. was the last time I was there, and then for the last time I was on Nerds on History, I, I couldn't tell you. I think it was uh, Jack the Ripper back yes, in March. Yes, the, the infamous Jack the Ripper episode where one of the listeners ripped us to shreds. Oh, oh. rip shots! Oh he stuck the landing on that one, ladies my and gents. God. I have to put the puns in because Eric's not here. <laughs> I have to contribute. That's good. Well, you know, for those who need to get versed, Dave, Eric, and I, myself started Nerdonomy. Almost two years ago. And it's crazy because Dave and I were, were the original co-hosts of Nerds on Film before we worked Sarah and then eventually Roxy into the mix. And Sean. And Sean, of course, as well. Back in the days when I, – I I love how – because when I did the uh, the animal episode of Nerds on Film, there needed to be a preface of who is Dave McGuire. And it's because <laughs> like, we have so many – this guy making jokes yeah who is this guy as if he's been on it the whole time because we've had so many new listeners since my last official episode uh that they're probably just like dave mcguire like they like they go to the website and they see me on the nerds page and they're like who's that guy like he says he's a film nerd uh but yeah no uh i've been here since the beginning i've been in the background the facebook's and the twitter's and we don't have Instagram. Well, we do, but we never use it. Uh, <laughs> but anything social media related, um, Eric and I are, are whipping up something. So Working on a secret project. Working on our... We're oh, basically, we're working <clears throat> on Iron Man. Yeah. Oh, my God. Wouldn't that be great? No. Yeah. 
I just stole the line from President Obama. No, 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 we're not working on Iron Man, but we're working on something very special. We have the same uh, speechwriters as President Obama. Thanks, oh, guys. We really appreciate if it. If we had that, we would have like five times the listeners we would have now, probably. Hey, hey, uh, little note to selves. Today, the day that we are recording this episode, we finally reached 1,000 likes on Facebook. That's right. Congratulations to us. Yeah, huge accomplishment for I us i think the last time i checked it was like a thousand five thousand five yes so so even if we lose one or two we're still above we're a still in the a thousand club which is great so thank you listeners yeah and um we never talked about it but we also we reached 500 on twitter a couple months ago so like we're it's good and that's about right we have about double right the following on facebook so and that's always kind of been the case mm-hmm. which is great uh well let's let me tell you a little bit about how dave and i got started david and i before nerdonomy we where we were theater friends. We uh, we did acting and film work together uh, in college. And I think we've mentioned this before, oh but my God. it bears repeating. <laughs> I just I just remembered we did a scene together for, for Jim Colner's class. It oh my God, acting. yeah, it's on our, it's on our YouTube, uh, or on my YouTube Some, channel. Yeah, 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 you can check it out. Um, in fact, I'm sure we can post it tomorrow. We should totally do that. We should totally post it. Yeah. Uh, it, God, I forget the name of the scene, but it's about... I remember it's from it's from a little heart on the like fire, the heart of the fire, exactly. heart of the fires, and the scene is about two siblings. Originally, it's a boy and a girl, right? Uh, and the girl is a bartender, and the boy comes to basically their their, their mother is dying, and like they each had their own issues with the mother, and yeah. um, the one the one sibling has come to terms with it, and he's trying to get the other sibling to to come to terms with it, and so. Um, God, I totally remember that was like like our first legitimate yeah. acting scene with one another. Yeah, it was a great scene. <clears throat> it was awesome to to be in that moment with you. Um, what I will say is that play is really interesting too because it's not just about the relationship that they have with their mother; it's also about their relationship, right, and how they right. can grow and right. Because well, there's definitely a lot of there's a lot of sibling like resentment that oh, was being that oh, was totes. festering on the surface in that scene. Definitely. I was a dancer. You were jealous of my mad skills. <laughs> just so funny i'm sorry yeah in the script it's a woman and so she goes to like dance recital but she has an mfa in acting or right. not acting in dance and she's working as a bartender right and so they we were like oh let's well i guess we'll just make it two guys it's fine so and we kept the line so it was like yeah she took you all your dancing classes and things and it's like yeah and i was not a very skinny guy so it's like what did you dance like <laughs> the, and the thing is like when you said that you reminded me of that i immediately flashed to you Doing like flash dance, <laughs> pulling a chain, water falling on me. Uh, which, if given enough rehearsal and enough incentive, they probably would do that. Actually, oh, if there was a paycheck involved, I would <laughs> dance through sparks and waterfalls to to entertain folks. But we've been to a couple weddings too. Like you know, you know how to cut the rug on a dance floor, <clears throat> so it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility. That's true. Not yeah. Yeah, I've I've gone to a couple of weddings as your uh, as your companion. <laughs> and I was like, so how long have you two been together? No, 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 it's not like that. It's not like that. And you think we're kidding? That's legitimately <laughs> that's been actually, a question that's actually been asked yeah. to us. They're like, oh, you brought your boyfriend? No, 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 just friend. Uh, yeah. Anyway, Sorry, we decided. I you. No, no, it's fine. So Dave and I go back a long time, and so we started as actors, and that I think that kind of lends to our ability to talk in front of the mic uh, on podcasting, and people who have heard. This from the beginning, no, no stranger to know that I'm I'm also an actor, uh, that I have a degree in theater, and that I'm pursuing a career in acting uh, while doing this and doing my day job, which means I'm insane because I don't have any free time, uh, hardly. And the days I'm free time, I become a complete introvert. I just sit in my house and say, I don't want to do anything. 
Yeah. Yeah. Except yeah. watch like Food Channel, which I totally concur with your decision. Yeah. I'd much rather sit in front of a television and watch Chopped all day. That's fine. Right. Uh, let's get on with the topic, though. Uh, the reason why we bring up this whole that we uh, started off as as acting friends yeah. is that I wanted to revisit our theater episode from a different perspective, mm. which is to say that we we talked a lot about ancient history and middle age history, and we got a little bit to modern modern theater, but we didn't really talk about uh, what's happened in the 20th century with theater. And we can't talk about what, the 20th century theater without really focusing very heavily on what changed with the actor. Because I think, and that's how I'd like to, to kind of direct the episode for tonight, as if it were directing. Um, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, because a lot changed. And a lot of the things that we know now of, uh, of film as well as you know, television and theater are all conventions that are less than 100 years old. And that includes within theater as well. Uh, I think a lot of people assume that film and television just adapted what was already there in theater. And that's true. But what was already there in theater was still very new that they were working with. Yeah. Yeah. And I think <clears throat> if you really think about it, I mean, the only difference between television acting and film acting, which are generally the same principle, depending upon what kind of television you're doing. If you're doing a 30-minute multi-camera show, then you're kind of doing more like stage acting. Yeah, it's more like a – it's a weird blend because it's yeah, it not is, an audience. Because you're basically on a, on a three-quarter stage – Right? I mean, you've got a giant set behind you. You've got two to three cameras in front of you. Think a la like the Big Bang Theory. Right. You know? And so you're, you're having to cheat out. So it's very theater-esque, except right. you may have an audience that's live watching. Again, elements of theater, and you're just filming it all. And then yeah. it goes into editing, and they add all the good stuff. Or there's the one-hour dramas or movies, which are single camera generally. Sure. And moving on. <clears throat> but the, the point of that, I was going to say, is that... Th- there's really those are really only the major differences are just having cameras in front of you. The actual method that the actor goes through, right, is pretty much consistent throughout all mediums. Yeah, I mean it, internally it's very much the same thought process. How much energy you give is really what changes. Dependent upon what form you're doing it. Right, and even like when you do like a, uh, a three camera, as Dave was talking about, like a three camera television show, you'll get. A situation where you know you'll you'll give the enough for the wide and for the medium, which is what most television in sitcoms will cut to, and then when they say, "Hey, we're going to do the close up next," or the medium close up is usually what it ends up being, uh, and then you know they pull it back a little bit more, they restrain a little bit more. The thing is that an actor never really restrains anything; they're showing everything. They're acting with you act with your whole body, but you just choose what to show, what not to show, given the shot that you're doing, and uh, that all started because of what happened in theater in the late 19th century. And I think that's an important place to start when we go forward into the 20th century. Do tell. I will. So come along with this journey as we go into the history of 20th century acting. What? I like that. I like that. I, I feel like there's like some sort of like medieval-like loot playing in the background. I feel like we're about to watch like a BBC special, yeah. right? <laughs> Put dramatic music. The actor! Or you should get like Robin Leach. Be acting. like, the actors! Uh-huh. <laughs> No, I can't do Robin Leach. Anyways, carry Robin on. Leach. Robin Leach. <laughs> I can only say Robin Leach in Robin Leach's Leach voice. voice. <laughs> it's like Robin Leach has had a terrible brain accident, and that's all I can say. <laughs> Robin Leach. Uh, this is ridiculous. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> we just we just stop giving him a show, and he just keeps saying Robin Leach over and over again. It's. <laughs> When we get a low, I'm just going to say Robin Leach, and then we'll just kind of... We'll just we'll laugh it out. Perfect. Okay. Yeah, and, and that's an acting joke, and we'll talk about that in a moment, too. Yes. So, uh, 
<laughs> okay, so so late nineteenth century, uh, you have a couple important movements going on in Western acting. The big kind of trend going through European theater is this devotion to uh, to kind of to realism. But the weird thing is, there is still this clash between a very declamatory version of acting uh, and what we what realism acting would be more of what we look at today. Declamatory is highly stylized, very much based out of the classical era when you're talking about Shakespeare and Moliere and uh, those kind of actings. And the goal is it's not about realism. It's about capturing the tone of the scene. And everyone understands that it's it's a uh, it's an artistic choice. So the the uh, iconic view of that would be someone doing like a 19th century version, an early 19th century version of Hamlet, you know, where he's holding the you know, his hand out to the audience saying, to be or not to be, that is the question, you know, that kind of thing. That's very declamatory, where you're focusing on the language and you're just putting tons of energy into it. Basically, most, not all, but most community theater actors who are trying to do Shakespeare. Right, exactly. They make that major mistake of like, I'm going to make it big. Right. And I'm going to be pretty generically British. Right, exactly. If you've seen Saturday Night Live circa 1989, when John Lovitz was in the cast, his character Master Thespian, I am just acting! Thank you! Like, that is complete declamatory acting. So good. So yes. do yourself a favor. If you don't know what I'm talking about, and hopefully most of you do, go to YouTube uh, or just go, go to Google and search for be Master Thespian. Be careful, Thespian. though. That's a rabbit hole. Yeah, just <laughs> yeah. You're just gonna be forewarned. Be, you're gonna get caught there for like two or three hours. There are some amazing sketches. I think one of the best ones is when it was him and uh, John Lithgow doing it because oh. John Lithgow can totally ham it up, and that's where the term "hamming it up" comes from, right? Because of the term "Hamlet," because people would just—that's the iconic part you would have played at that point in time, right? I uh, I'm gonna be a hundred percent dead to real with you. Um, did not know that that's where the origin of that phrase came of the from. Hamming, of hamming it up comes from, <clears throat> of course. But as we, like as I said, as we're getting into the later half of the century, mm-hmm. uh, there becomes a strong devotion to realism. The idea that you are witnessing behavior that would be like everyday life. Which is interesting because you, you are doing material that sometimes is very whimsical, right? Um, but it has to be grounded in reality. has to be grounded in some sense of perception of truth, verisimilitude. So you, in the late 19th century, you get interesting things happening. Like in Germany, uh, you find that there are productions that are usually only like meet for the first time a week before the show opens. And all the actors are already, they already know their part by that to say, when you learned your part back then you, you got the script, you already made all your decisions in your mind, what you were going to do. You learned your lines already. You're just learning how that works with other people and blocking, Wow, which is very true to the work ethic in professional theater today too. Like you, you know, you come to the table, you're ready to go. At least by the first time you, you work a scene, you're off book by it for that right. scene. Yeah, but this is the off book for the whole thing. Which I don't think I've done personally a show in which every actor or even more than one actor was off book by the time we came yeah. to the first table. I gotta right? say, my first professional show uh, was mind-blowing because, I mean, my lines were very, very simple. So, yeah, of course I was off book because I had like five lines in the entire show. So easy easy for me. You're like, sure, are you off book? But yeah, the, me too. But the only people who weren't off book were the two leads. It's because they had these insanely long monologues and several of them. So the monologues themselves weren't off book, but they were, but they, but nevertheless, like they could work a scene and they would just be like, it's so funny listening to an actor do that because they're like, and you, and you, oh, <laughs> you know? Oh my God. Rehearsals are probably like the best part of the entire process. It's amazing. Forget the performances and the performances are a thing in and of itself, but right. rehearsals of, of, in its own is just 
such a great raw experience to right. see people like get really into character and then when they get pulled out because they forget a line they're like damn it and then yeah. they go okay go back and they There's just a, pop right back in so they were working a scene and the, this it was the whole story was about is mary queen of scots and she was being interrogated by uh, one of her uh imprisoners and they were saying this, 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 and this. And she knew the emotional reaction, the the intellectual reaction to what they were saying, but she didn't know the actual words. So she she kept in the moment and totally broke period and said, "Well, that's bullshit." <laughs> and it was it was hilarious, but it was also very true to that moment. True to- so, and that's that's the whole thing is like that's what actors are trying to do. They're trying to create those moments, those realistic moments. Isn't it weird though that I mean to kind of do a quick side tangent? I don't want to go too far into it, but people generally go see film and they go see theater to escape the real life, right? They want to go see other things, other stories being told, and kind of have some sort of escape from right. the mun- you know the mundane. And yet, the actors are up on stage trying to show realistic performances of something, you know, so that way you can feel something for it. So it's like you're escaping reality to go see people pretend reality. It is the most odd psychological experiment theater is the most odd psychological experiment because you do you go in the room you gather in the room and you are completely aware that what you are seeing is lies they are completely lying to you but yet you believe it you choose to believe it which says which has some very dangerous undertones to it if you think about it what says that everybody's very willing to lie i don't know what the psychological terminology or that would be but Everyone can be. Everyone can you're get collectively. Into it. You're collectively buying into this lie. I wonder, and that's an experiment that, that I don't know if that's out there or not. It's like it's because you're in a group setting, so everybody's accepting the lie. But if it was just one person watching the show, are they going to accept the lie just like they a group would accept the right. lie? Right. Well, that's that can be said about television, right? You choose to accept what you're saying to be engaged. Happened. <laughs> you get. You choose to get engaged with what you see on screen, uh, and it's a similar concept to it, right? But, you know, you can also argue that the lies are the lies that you see uh, on the surface are actually telling a higher truth from within. And that's why people are okay engaging with that fictitious world that you're seeing created on stage with you. Um, So Germany, as we were saying, we were talking about the the sense of uh, realism and that they meet a week before. Right. So they get their blocking out. And what was interesting, uh, one of my close friends, Evan, who's been on the show before, is also a theater guy uh, and he was talking about how they would actually block the scenes as if they were in an actual room didn't matter if you could see the bodies or not if someone's back was to the audience or whatever didn't matter they would do it and they'd actually construct the set with four walls uh, and then they would remove the fourth wall huh. on the actual opening and that's where you know the whole idea Breaking of the, the fourth, fourth wall, wall right yeah, is that the fourth wall is always invisible right um, but the wall has been created in this rehearsal process very very interesting uh, and likewise, in England, you had the way they were devoting to realism is they were trying to do it not just with acting, but also trying to do it with stagecraft mm-hmm. as well. So, like, you have productions of Shakespeare being mounted, and Shakespeare had a resurgence in the 19th century as well. Uh, you have all these productions of, like, Midsummer Night's Dream, which take place usually in the forest, right? So you have, you know, like, they actually got real bunnies to to go hop and they're hopping around the stage which is crazy to think that they have to have like a wrangler to make sure that the bunnies don't get lost or don't jump into the audience or whatever you know so god how many accidents happened i don't even want to think about that it it would make the PETA people just go insane poop themselves exactly but what's also interesting is as you're getting this more realistic approach 
to acting, you also see the birth of the thing we take for granted the most today, which is the director. It's crazy to think that the director is only 100 years old in acting. Uh, really? Yeah, right? Up to, I know, everyone would just assume, well, what's that all about? Here's the thing. Very much like television, the writer is kind of the creative authority on, on a television show. They're usually the producer of the show. Generally, and they're usually yeah. the showrunner, right? In fact, yeah, they're the EP. Executive yeah. producer. Yeah. So the, uh, the director, uh, in a sense, is similar to that. Um, so the writer, for years in, in, in theater had that kind of sense of because he was telling the story he knew how how the story should be told and the most you had the writer collaborating with the stage manager to make sure everything was working with its pieces on stage but that was it right to actually have the director form in the late 19th century you have one person who's in charge now of all the creative aspects of the show now their responsibility i would say is to do justice to what the writer's trying to do what the writer's intentions are um but in even most then, cases, yes. Yeah, but but there is flexibility, especially when, right. you're, when you're reinterpreting Shakespeare, you're reinterpreting... God, I heard about a production of Les Mis that was done in a postmodern uh, setting, which is very unusual because that has a very set date and, and time to it. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then again, you can also do Titus Andronicus, which is supposed to be set in Rome, and do it with Anthony Hopkins in a postmodern, futuristic kind of look, and you can make it work. So right. you, you just you got to be open-minded to it. And you, don't have to, you have to know how to frame... The, uh, the, the subtext concept. of this conversation, ladies and gentlemen, is sometimes setting a play in a certain time period, maybe not the best idea. Sure. Right. It Sometimes it works, sometimes it really doesn't. Uh, so you have that going on. But then let's also talk about what's going on in Russia at the same time, too. Oh, Russia. Right. In particularly Moscow was also a cultural hub of Europe. You know? And so a lot of the trends that go on tend to carry through the cultural hubs. Dublin was a cultural hub at this point in time, mm-hmm. obviously Paris, Rome, I mean, several cities in, in Italy, right, right, right. Venice. So you, you're working your way through. So of course, these ideas are going to migrate around just by people, actors who are going from city to city in Europe to perform in shows. So of course, these ideas are going to exchange. So the reason why that's important, because then that's where we meet Konstantin Stanislavski, because he was a stage actor in the late 19th, early 20th century. And if you've heard the name Stanislavski, you know it's synonymous with method acting. But he had nothing to do with method acting. That's the funny thing. He was an actor who was mediocre for his time. He had a hard time trying to figure out how to create those realistic moments. He was kind of stuck in that crossroads between the realism and the declamatory style that we're used to seeing. Which I think is a very common feeling for people where it's like you've got two two methods of, of... Being told, okay, you can either do it one way or you can do it this other way. And you are a singular person saying, well, I don't identify with column A. I really don't identify with column B. I think there's elements of both that could kind of be something. Can that be can, – can there be like a, a middle ground? And most people are going, no, no not at all. And, so the, and that was his internal struggle because right. how do you do Moliere – which requires a very stylized approach to it. And then how do you do Shakespeare? And then, or, or now how do you do the cont- more contemporary works that are coming around? Like Chekhov, right? So now you're you're stuck thinking, well, crap. I, I, it, they're totally different styles. What do I have to do to help prepare for each of those? So what was interesting is that Stanislavski was journaling his, uh, his approaches. And that's really kind of the key of the modern actor is journaling your process to figure out what you have to do to make the performance believable. And what he ended up doing was taking his notes and he called developed what he called the system. 
And the system is his own method, basically his own approach to making the performance believable. But it's all predicated on the one concept of the magic if. Is that what would they what would I do if I were the character? If I were in the character's circumstances, right? Which is something that every modern actor uses to some degree or another today. I would I would argue to say that pretty much almost every actor does that from now on. Like, I mean, from, from a lot of the interviews that I've heard or interviews that I've read, they're always saying like, well, if I was in that situation, like how would I feel about it? And so on and so forth. And so I think Stanislavski, and correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, that that's, isn't that the primary method that's, that's being taught in most acting uh, schools or colleges or I would classes? Say, I would say it's the primary method like saying the microprocessor is the primary method for computers. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. But so for those that are listening who don't know, maybe you should explain what you mean. So so the microprocessor, the idea is that pretty much every modern electronics today has a microprocessor right. in, of some kind, right? But the point is that one piece, yes, th that's critical. That's how we, we make it work. But yet it can get so much more elaborate uh, and specific to the function of that device right so i would say well yes that intention is always is there the approaches to how you make that happen have varied quite a bit since then what's interesting about stanislavski though is as he was journaling these he started to realize that he was being able to find a way that could apply to any style uh, and it, yes of course you make adjustments to the style itself but the internal process for how you make it work doesn't change and what he did is he journaled, he took his journals and he kind of turned it into a somewhat semi-fictitious journaling where he was talking, he, he basically changed the names of it and published his books. Uh, and they're now called the ABCs of acting because it's an actor prepares is the one book one, book two is building a character and book three is creating a role. So you have these being published in the early 20th century and uh, the influence of that starts to gain traction because of a couple different things. One of them being that we start to see have films now as well. And given that you've got the you know, the close-up, uh, which you'd never get on stage before, you now have to do a more natural form of acting, you know? So you've got that, plus you've got Chekhov, which is so much more deeply psychological in its writing. You know, George Bernard Shaw was publishing works that were much more contemporary and talking about, again, these deep emotional concepts not to say that Shakespeare the people before them weren't doing that but the way they were played out was in again it's a much more realistic manner of happening right they weren't speaking in iambic pentameter they weren't speaking in verse they were speaking in just normal dialogue you right. know the two forces kind of made acting go that that direction so uh what ends up happening is, uh, as we were talking about, we've kind of talked about with New York theater as well, uh, in the early 20th century, Broadway starts to gain more traction in the early 1920s. And what ends up happening is now you get devotion to storytelling. You know, theater isn't always about, yes, you can go and see Hamlet at, at one theater in, in New York, um, but a lot of times people are going to, to Broadway to see a musical show. Right. You know? And then, you know, then you get a, sh a play like Showboat <laughs> coming around, where all of a sudden you have a dramatic approach to musical theater. Right. So now, whether it's musical or whether it's straight theater, uh, you end up getting this devotion to, well, let's talk about telling a, a, the story. A good story. Let's tell the story. Let's not talk, make it fluff that strings the things, the musical numbers together. Let's 
actually make the work honest. Well, right, because now because now you're giving the actors a moment to actually be able to chew on something. You know, as before, as you just as you just said, right? Prior to this, it was a lot of fluff, or it was very minimal character work, and it was very two dimensional, maybe even at times one dimensional characters, very archetypal. And now you're starting to see this this need and necessity, not only from the actor's point of view, but probably also from the audience's point of view, of saying, you know, I've seen the good guy save the the woman off the train tracks with the guy with the top hat in the in the you know the the handlebar mustache, like. We get that, but let's let's figure out like who is the hero that is trying to save it? Like what what's his what's his character flaws? You know, who's this woman? Like why is she there? Why is this guy upset at them? And it's just you start to build out this world and you start to create a, a more in-depth and more uh, succinct world, which is f- quite frankly more entertaining for the actor because now you're giving the actor more to, to do and you're also giving them more to think upon to be able to enhance their performance in front of an audience. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and what ends up happening now is Stanislavski's work starts to gain traction in America. Uh, and then for a couple different reasons. Prior to Broadway's traction gaining forward, too, there was also a, long, a lot of uh, smaller multicultural, multi-ethnic theaters because of the immigration from Europe to the United States. You have a lot of this stuff going on. And they were, these were theaters that were being done in their own language. Right. So if you go to the Yiddish theater in New York, you're going to see plays that are written for, to a Yiddish audience performed in Yiddish with Yiddish actors. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, there's a, a Yiddish actor known by Jacob Adler who actually did end up, I think, working with Stanislavski at some point or, or another on one production. And uh, very, very cool. Um, that's important because his daughter is Stella Adler. And Stella Adler is a powerhouse of one of the modern acting techniques. And she's the only American actress who studied with Stanislavski directly. Um, so as we get into this, we were talking about with the, the surge of, again, this sense of trying to tell the story truthfully, right? And trying to, to engage with the material and to make it, you know, there's the psychological approaches with trying to make it all work. Uh, what you end up getting is you get a couple different approaches to, to acting developing. Um, and in the 30s and 40s, you have actors and directors like Elia Kazan, Lee Strasberg, and Robert Lewis uh, they, they had worked in a theater called The Group Theater, and that was where also Stella Adler had started working. And she worked as a film actress as well. Uh, and she was seeing these techniques with, with Stanislavski. And, but what they were really seeing was method. And method takes Stanislavski's idea about the magic gift, but then you also start to see these other uh, interpretations take form. Like you get this whole idea of muscle memory, because you have to be able to know exactly how to do it so you you'd spend all this time rehearsing how to do it and then so that you can do it without it actually being there which looks very very weird to someone who's not an actor and I, like if you just see me doing this which i'm trying to look look like i'm trying to open a jar it it just looks absurd that i'm trying to do it but it the idea is to let your imagination kind of take over and believe that you're doing it um so which they have a label for that i just called that regular every day like when i was a kid i'd just be like i want some of the you know, the be like jelly. I'm like, yeah, jelly. I want jelly. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Uh, and so I, what I find very interesting is that Stella Adler was like looking at this and also looking at this idea of mo- emotional substitution, uh, which is the idea that if you can't relate to what the character is doing in the moment, use something from your own life that kind of connects to it. And she thought, well, that's a complete bastardization of 
of the character because you're not living the character at that point. You're living your moment through the character, through the character, and disguising it as such. Yeah, and she believed that was not an honest approach to acting. And Stanislavski would have would have agreed with that too. Um, but again, that comes from the, again this approach of magic if, and maybe a misinterpretation of magic if, um, because it's a very thin, that's a very slippery slope. It is totally because there are moments where you, yeah, you, where there's empathy, right? And I think every good actor has a tremendous sense of empathy, but saying, okay, I can feel where this is coming from, but, but there's the point where people are trying to say, well, I've I've been through what you're being through, and that's the only way I can do is. Correctly, no, that's not true. Yeah. It's like, oh, I just murdered my brother. Like, wait, no, I didn't. Like, that was that. that that's the character. Right. I myself, my brother's fine. Right. I, I I don't know how I would feel if I were in that situation. Right. And and ultimately, it comes down to really is it understanding how the character is working psychologically, and that's the other thing too. We haven't even talked about. There's been lots of work in the field of psychology in this point in time too. Right from the 1800s forward, we now have psychology. We didn't have that. In its formal sense. Right, because now you've got Freud, who's breaking down the id, ego, and superego. And, and you got Jung as well, who's working on... You know, so, in Jungian archetypes, for example, um, and personality types as well. So, you know, you've got more understandings of the human psyche, which means that you have a better understanding of character. Mm-hmm. And, and what motivates people to do what they're doing. Agreed. Which, again, makes it more realistic. More believable. I, w- I want to use the word believable, because it's not always realistic. Like, that's why you can make... I believe that man turned into a donkey. Exactly. Like in Midsummer Night's Dream. Or, you know, Luke Skywalker is the son of... uh, A man who is partly robot because he was burned in a volcano. Brian, this is legitimate. Exactly. And he has a magic fire sword that uh, that can cut through anything. It's a laser sword. That's the point I'm getting at. It's There's certain points like, this is not physically possible. So we have to... Dave just pushed his invisible glasses up a little higher. <laughs> Excuse me, it is a laser sword? <laughs> um, so anyway, that's how these things can become believable. It's because of the psychological approaches and because of this. Um, finally, what ended up happening is that Stella Adler met Stanislavski. And she said, you know, before you came around, I used to love the theater. Now because of you, I hate it. <laughs> Which is a pretty heavy-handed thing to say. Uh, but she was like that. Uh, you can also, by the way, Google and see her acting classes from her acting studio. You can find uh, video recordings of a fascinating person to learn about. Uh, so finally, he kind of set her straight and offered to start giving her lessons. Not to say that she didn't know what she was doing, but just to kind of work with her and to kind of help understand his approach. Where he was coming from. Exactly. Uh, so they they met. And they met, like, I would say, I don't know how often they would meet, but they met in person and they would go over... You know the process and the intellectual work, and they, I don't know if they would do scenes necessarily, but they, she just basically learned directly from the master. Uh, and because of that, that her whole devotion was to to counteract the misinterpretations of his work that had been done in place by the group theater and the actor studio. And this is not to say that the actor studio was wrong for their approach at all. Whatever works, and that's ultimately what Stanislavski says too. Whatever works, he even said, "Don't." rely so heavily on my system do whatever works you know break traditions if you have to just do what works so uh but she still felt like that there was a misunderstanding so she wanted to teach the true approach and so really now you're getting this semantic argument of it's it's uh system versus method they're both two names for the same thing but the approaches are, are very very different hers is much more about letting the imagination take shape and there's some Things that are similar, like muscle memory, 
Um, right. But mostly she's talking about circumstances. You have to understand the circumstances of the character before you can play the moment of the scenes correctly. And there are instances in real life where sometimes the actor takes that a bit too far. Where Agreed. they, I mean, not to... The preparation sometimes is, it gets a little weird, I will say. Uh, for instance, uh, Dustin Hoffman was once, I forget who he was on the set with. He was on a, he was on the set with some big name actor, and I for, I'm forgetting his name. He was an older actor. Uh, and his character required that he be an insomniac or up for two days right, straight. He was, was from Marathon Man, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, who's the actor that was in that with him? Olivier. Olivier, right, That's right. That's the cool part. And yeah. so, and so Hoffman is like, you know, he stayed up for two days straight to get into character, quote unquote. And Olivier just looks at him and goes, have you tried acting? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. And and it, that's his point. <laughs> it's just like, you don't need to do that to your body. Right. You know? Exactly. You can, just... you, can, you can maybe be aware of it when you're in that state, maybe journal it so you can understand what that is like. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, when you're preparing in those moments, those feelings and that, that state of mind are experiences that you can kind of log and you put on a shelf, you know, and you remember what that feels like. And I mean, this is very like, again, imaginative and you, it's almost like you're going internally into the, the closet of your mind, pulling it off the shelf and putting it on. Right. You know, because you've, you've, you have experienced it. So then you can, you can play it or you've witnessed it and you're trying to, to, to you know, to emulate that as best as you can. Yeah. It, I did a show a couple years back where I had to play a, uh, mentally challenged uh, character and pretty much when I was talking with the director about it, it we were doing Agatha Christie's and then there were none which is based off of her book 10 Little Indians um, and the director basically said you know this character Jan he he just thinks that he's he's a child you know so don't play him you know like simple Jack you know play him like he is an, an eight-year-old or a five-year-old it trapped inside of a 19-year-old or 20-year-old's body and to prepare you know I, I i worked at the tech museum at the time and i worked at a place where there was a bunch of kids that would come on school trips and god this is going to sound so creepy i can't believe i'm admitting this but i would watch these kids and especially the younger ones i'd watch them and just kind of watch how they'd walk and i'd watch how they would react and i mean that's kind of part of this method where it's you, you you're taking what you see okay this you is how it actual yeah. yeah and you take that behavior and you adapt it to what you're doing which again is a psychological approach psychology right. in and of itself is defined as the study of human can you behavior. imagine what the world would be like in acting if psychology had never been discovered or ever like explored and developed exactly it'd be a totally different approach and i think what you're getting at though is really important which is that you don't have to live the character's circumstances to have understand where they're coming from or to understand why they do what they do or to understand how they do what they do what it requires you to do is to not judge the character and understand as much as you can about their motivations, which is why you do all this research, right? Like, like Dave was saying, he did, that is actual behavioral research. He'd go and he would make notes and observe what was going on and practice those those things. It's like, if you're going to play Adolf Hitler, you're obviously not going to do the things that Hitler did. did. You would be locked up. Uh, and you're not going to walk around dressing like, like Adolf Hitler. Again, you would get scoffed at and you would probably get committed to a mental asylum. Or but, murdered. Or murdered, depending on what neighborhood you're in exactly but nevertheless what you do is you'd research his life you'd research but the, the scary thing though is how do you truthfully play a character like adolf hitler you can detest the things he did but now you have to understand where he can't where what his process was and that's a very scary thing to do because you because now you're saying i can actually even though i can't do it myself 
I actually can understand the behaviors of an evil person. Well, I think with acting, you have to be able to do that. I think you have to be able to see the most deplorable people in the world. And you, it, the, when talking about evil characters or villains of pieces, whether it be plays, movies, tele, you know, or television, the villain is never villainous just because he wants he or she wants to be villainous they have a purpose they believe that what they are doing right it's not is, melodrama anymore no mm. no so so people who play hitler who play you know eventually saddam hussein or osama bin laden i mean to kind of bring it into a more you know uh contemporary context, contemporary context. Yeah. um you have to whoever whoever those actors are they're going to play those parts they have to think they're okay these guys did horrible things. However, let's look at it from their point of view. Like, what were they trying to accomplish? You know? And yeah, it is a scary thing. But I think as an actor, you have to be able to separate those feelings of like, okay, I know I would never do that. But thinking as him, I get it. Like, I get where he's coming from. As him, I understand what he's trying to do. He's trying to rise to power and provide a better world for his country. Like, that's his ultimate goal. You know, yeah. if I were to play Hitler, like that, that was his thought process was that, you know, and so, yeah, and, and it, you know, and either it helps you, it, it probably, you know, if it were me, I would find that my detest for him would grow even more because I, you know, every minute that I'd be playing it, I'd just be like, God, I hate this guy. I just want to punch him in his little mustache face. Yeah. You know, case in point, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, when he played uh, Sir Mr. Candy in uh, Django Unchained, hated the character. Yeah. Hated him so much and even called him the most deplorable and vile person he has ever read. And yet he still did it. And he right. did it flawlessly. Right. And that's the point is like y you you can hate their actions, but you but yet when you become that character, when you have to play that character, you have to put all that aside and just say, okay, my feelings about his actions don't aren't important right now. And from an actor's point of view, playing villains are sometimes so much better than playing the hero because they're, they're fun because th you get to do things that you would never do in normal life. That and they're also they're oftentimes the more complex. Now, yeah. in this day and age in 2014, heroes are becoming more complex, which is why we're getting the anti-hero movement and things of that sort, and that's great. And I'm glad there's complexity added to the hero and they're not just, you know, the right guy at the right time for the right job. Right. Mr. Dudley do right. Or exactly. Right. It's like before it was like you got Dudley do right. And then you have like this complex, really messed up, very intricate villain. And most people wanted to do that. Now the villains are becoming the heroes or, you know, and you know, that's what we're starting to see now is this transition from, you know, standard good guy to really complex characters all around. And that's so fantastic. Yeah. That means better storytelling. Yeah. The exactly. actors have so much more to play with now. I mean, why do you think a lot of movie stars are jumping ship on movies to go play in TV? Cause now television has more, sure has more to play with. And, right. And I will say from my own experience, the most fun I ever had playing a part was captain hook in Peter Pan. Right. Cause he's a super complex character. He's a super complex character, but it's also, you get, I guess in that kind of thing, you get lost in the whimsy of it too. You get lost in what the character gets to do. Now, of course, if you're playing Hitler, you're not going to revel in the fact that, you know, you're ordering the death of 11 million people, but you, right. you may find something you connect with saying, I'm going to do everything I can to make Germany great, you know, and that's all I'm going to do. Exactly. And when you can connect with it, because you find, again, there's some human element to everything that we can identify with, mm -hmm. then you are devoted, you're committed to that action. You can actually perform the scene and when you're playing hook, it's when you wear the hook, you've got the mustache on, the long black It's the coolest curls, feeling in the world. And you're right? wearing that petticoat and the hat and you got Dude, the sword. I, I mean... I, I, I have never had as much joy 
as an actor than I had sword fighting Peter Pan as Captain Hook. And it was good straight sword choreography. It looked like something out of Pirates of the Caribbean. It was freaking awesome. And with the music that had a Pirates of the Caribbean kind of sound to it, it is the best way. I mean, there's only other word I can say. It just is, it is pure, unadulterated joy. It's like playtime is what it is. And, and, and there's a part of that, your psyche, that that never goes away. You, you need to revel in that. And people have their own outlets for doing that. People, some people, it's going to a theme park and going on a roller coaster. Some people, it's going and seeing a really good movie, right? And getting lost in that story. For me, it's actually being part of it. Right. And creating it. So whatever works. But this all wouldn't have happened if it didn't come from what happened both with Stella Adler and the group theater. Right. Uh, in the 1930s and 40s. Because the group theater, again, sprang off and became the actor studio. And the other thing I want to bring, bring up is there's a couple other approaches to acting that came from this same point in time. You have Uta Hagen, who was uh, also very devoted to Stanislavski and the, the Adler approach. I have one of her books. Very, very similar, actually, right? Talking, when she talks about muscle memory and she talks about using letting the imagination take place. Meisner does the same thing. Meisner technique is really interesting, though, because they have a he's the one where he goes into the more crazy exercises, like the pretending you're a dog or pretending you're a table kind of yeah stuff. it's like how would you pretend how would you do this scene if you were you know something different other than yourself right which i get the thought process behind it where you're trying to see the the, the scene from a different perspective and which helps you gain insight into the actual scene that you're performing but right. but i mean if i'm doing romeo and juliet and i'm trying to become romeo and pr- i mean no offense to to shakespeare but i mean romeo is pretty pretty well played out like i mean like there's no real depth to him anymore that we have to discover well shakespeare because shakespeare is written the way it is there's no questions you have to ask everything's right. on the page exactly so if it'd be like okay use the miser technique to figure out romeo and be like so i'm a tree <laughs> right and i love the wind which is juliet because the wind blows my leaves now let's say you're going to set romeo and juliet in the guardians of the galaxy you no know, place and you decide that romeo is from the same species as groot Maybe the tree approach would work, <laughs> but not in any other context. Or maybe you're setting it in the Lord of the Rings and he's Wait, all of a sudden... Thou, Romeo, yeah. I am Groot. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you're making Groot an Ent from the Lord of the Rings. Uh, <laughs> but Meisner also comes up with a couple of really good things, though. Uh, there's the idea that activity, these an activity versus action. Action is, you know, you do something that relies on another character's response. Activity is like you're playing with your nails or you're fiddling with your hat, you're just shuffling your glasses, things that communicate what your psychological state is. He talked a lot about activity. I've always liked that about certain shows. Yeah. Know, especially when you have the actor doing something subtle. Like, I don't know why I find this fascinating, but when a character is so smug right. and they're giving off a monologue and they're eating an apple, just the act of them eating the apple makes me love them and hate them all at the same time because I'm like, you cheeky B word. <laughs> yeah. And there's also a exercise they do where if you're trying to improvise a scene, and you go off book, how do you stay in the moment? That's what Stan- Meisner and a lot of these acting coaches in the 20th century were trying to do. So uh, they would do a bit like whether you'd come up with a, a device, a, a trigger, right? And we kind of did it a little bit earlier when we were talking about Robin Leach. You know, that actually is a Meisner thing you could do. Not that actual moment, but that the act of doing that. It's like we were saying, if we were going to get a lull and we were we were able to lose momentum, uh, we would just say, Robin Leach, Robin Leach, Robin Leach, you know, and you would kind of go in this this back and forth to get the energy back up. And then usually all the, the hydraulics kind of kick back on in, intellectually and you, you remember where you were going. Mm-hmm. 
it's just allowing yourself the freedom to kind of explore that in the rehearsal process. You're not going to do that in the middle of a performance. That's just weird. But hopefully by the time you get you open, you're comfortable enough that you don't have to do those weird things. Be a great show. Be a yeah. great show story. And it also prepares you too because there are times mid-performance where, I'm sorry, like stuff's going to go wrong. I had a whole moment in my first show where the actor I was supposed to do a, a fight with, it was a three-person fight, missed his cue because he was trying to change costumes. Missed the cue completely. So we ended up having to improvise it as a two-person fight. This is with swords. This is with things that could injure you. It, it comes down to wow. to That's... trust, right? It comes down to you put your trust in the other actor and you trust the process and you trust that you guys aren't going to or will figure out a way to make it work. And it you trust they'll do about two or three moves and then you'll end it exactly exactly, <laughs> and we'll 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 figure it out. So um, thankfully the director was not in the, in the house that day because that would have been bad. But um, all these things happen because of that. And I want just I want to bring this home for a little bit because there's a couple other techniques that came up with the 20th century. Uh, the other one that I'm we we uh, learned a little bit about when I was going to college was the Suzuki method. Uh, what's interesting about the Suzuki technique or the Suzuki, Suzuki method is actually it's it's for a method that was developed for for learning music, um, but it was developed by uh, Shinichi Suzuki, and the idea is that you are learning from their, your environment. And uh, I never took the class on Suzuki myself, so I'd be lying if I said I, I was super knowledgeable on it. But I, I would say that that was something that came as a product of the mid twentieth century moving forward. Um, but you also have to wrap it up to David Mamet, right? The famous screenwriter and director also developed his own approach where he basically said, well, to hell with Stanislavski. And he came up with this idea called practical aesthetics. And his, and basically it was his modern interpretation of Aristotle's approach to, to theater. Um, and again, it all goes back to, you know, you don't have to think about how you're going to play the king. People if you tell them you're the king, they'll accept you. You're the king. You'll make adjustments to make yourself like that, the way the character's written. But you you don't have to do a lot of other internal preparation. Just be the character, or just 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 do it. And the uh, his approach was kind of like you know the, there's a little bit of investment. Like what's this what's this action like? What what is the essential action I'm doing? What's this action like? And that approach is done very heavily. Uh, and, I mean, you know, he was one of the people who was behind the Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago, so you can imagine the mammoth approach, the practical aesthetics approach is um, is done. That, also, that approach there. also requires a lot of F-bombs. <laughs> and and uh, mammoth speak, which is to say that mammoth speaks in such a distinct style that sometimes... You're it's right, very staccato. Staccato. Sometimes there's a lot of cursing. Sometimes yeah. it's very, very So uh, I know I, I know we I know we want to wrap up and kind of get to the end here, but I'm I'm curious. So of all the methods and, and I know we only touched upon maybe a third of what's out there as far as acting techniques and so, but Brian, you having gone through the process, you have uh, obtained a degree that states that you can now proclaim theater as as your career. Uh, what method do you most identify with? I most identify with, with Adler's approach, and that's actually the one I'd probably studied, but that's also because it's the one I've studied the most extensively. Um, I will say I've used bits of all of them, and I think that's what any actor will do, is they'll they'll use bits and pieces, again, because it all goes back to whatever works, mm-hmm. right? Um, I've journaled before. I haven't done it with every part. Like, if, if I'm having a challenge understanding why a character's doing something, I will journal as the character, just to kind of ex- do that exploration. And that was something I learned from one of my acting teachers in college, uh, Gwen, who was very big into the the Adler approach, but just again, she had done some, had some kick butt actor training, 
uh, she studied at a conservatory. So she, gotcha. she like she really knew her stuff and she had worked professionally for years. So journaling is part of it. Uh, for me, it's really coming down to <laughs> it's it always comes down to fundamentals. You know, read the script a couple times. Where do you understand where the character's coming from? Where do you not understand where the character's coming from? If you need to, write out what they're trying to do. Very, very simple. What is it what is it they want? You know, if you think if you think about that, everything else falls into place. As long as you're open to just saying, Okay, let's just see what happens, you know? Uh, and it takes a lot of trust. It takes a lot of you have to, you have to be relaxed in order to do it. You can't go into rehearsal tense because otherwise you're going to give a, a really crappy, performance. unrealistic performance. Yeah. Thankfully, when I sit foot in the theater, it's that there's this kind of subliminal psychological thing where just I I immediately just kind of chill out because I'm in a place where I'm comfortable and I'm safe. Right. So I guess it's Pavlovian in that sense. I've I've become to associate that with my safe zone. As theater is your bell. Theater is my bell exactly. <clears throat> um. So yeah. Yeah, and I think, like I said, any actor will kind of do the, the combination. Very few are adamantly about one style versus another. So yeah, I don't know if I have a distinct style. I mean, the times. I mean, I haven't done stage work quite a while actually, um, but the times that I have, I always ended up just kind of mentally just when I would get into the theater, I would just just try to think like the like the character. So I guess that would be more of the Stanislavski, but I would never say, you know, who. You know what would I do in this situation? Blah blah blah. I would yeah. just genuinely be like, like my last show that I did, I play I played a guy named Joe Farkas, and so I would, you know, think to myself, okay, like, what's going on for Joe in this scene? Like, what yeah. what what does he want? And you know, how would he feel in this situation? So, yeah. my uncle, I will say, you no, know, he's been on the show before. He's studied at Juilliard. Hi, Greg. Uh, group ten. Uh, he would always talked to me about he had a trifecta, right? You play them socioeconomically, anatomically, and psychologically. Uh, when you understand all those three things, you can never go wrong. And again, those all trail back to the microprocessor that is Stanislavski, right? All these ideas have some basis in All that. roads lead to Stanislavski. <laughs> sure. There you go. Um, and there you have it, folks. I mean, we kind of, we did kind of a very tangential path of how acting developed in the 20th century. I have a feeling that this is not the the last time that you're going to do a history of acting there there's there's so much more to touch on i'd love to do one on shakespeare we haven't done one yet and shakespeare that's oh a my whole... god you're right we haven't no we haven't done one on shakespeare so we'll revisit it again we have to i i can't not because i've said it before in the original episode theater is history you can't even if the show is contemporary or if the show is only from 20 years ago it's written within the context of the time it was written so therefore you have to understand you're trapping the, the world in that bottle exactly that's why it's, it is the most, to me, it is the most pure form of history because you get to bring to life the attitudes, the feelings, the mindset. It's a time capsule. Of a time capsule, uh, of the time that it, it came from. Exactly right. So um, that's why I want, and I will probably continue to talk about it incessantly. Um, let's get into some listener feedback, shall we? This week in listener feedback. Uh, we got one from Sam that I wanted to share uh, that was really, really great. He just sent it to us today, and it was his opinion on World War One. Mm. And it says, greetings, my fellow nerds. Firstly, I would like to say that I find your podcast to be fun and interesting, one that I love to listen to all the time. As a student in the academic decathlon program, this podcast came a year too late for me, as last year's topic was World War I. However, I enjoyed listening to and recognizing much of what you guys were talking about. Now, on to the subject of this feedback. In my personal opinion, had Germany won the First World War, the world would be a better place controversial opinion right but he goes further 
I subscribe to the idea that Hitler would have stayed obscure and out of power and that Nazism would have not had the deeply wounded German state in which it could survive and unfortunately thrive. So, right, because of the Versailles Treaty, as he mentions, the, the Treaty of Versailles was a disaster to the German economy. In this time of darkness, the German people looked for a hope and found it in the worst possible way. Hmm. Uh, one thing that annoyed me about my freshman history teacher and many others who talk about the Great War is that they unilaterally support the United States and the Allies rather than understanding that this was a war in which there were no good guys or bad guys. Both sides committed terrible atrocities, such as the British blockade of Germany's ports, which could be considered no better than the U-boat warfare that was impacted on civilian lives. Uh, while I have this on my list of com my complaints, I would like to end on the high note that you guys covered the topic very well, and mostly without bias. Your podcast has kept my love for history burning bright, and I salute you for your awesomeness. I agree. Sam, thank you for that. That's awesome. We really appreciate that. Yeah, Sam, well well said. Yeah. Good point. Um, and in fact, I mean, I, I read that today, and I was actually telling Brian that I think that at some point it would be fun to do a, uh, a what would happen in history to kind of take your idea, Sam, of saying, okay, well, let, let's say that Germany had won World War One, you know, then let's let's create a timeline, very Marty McFly and Doc Brownish, and create an alternate like, timeline for 1985 and see where the world would be. Would sure. Biff be running a casino in this world? Who knows? Right, right. Probably, exactly. yes. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> yes, and of course, if you would like to Give us more feedback, which you can do is go to our website, nerdonomy.com, and click on the talk to us and click on the give us feedback button. You can also, of course, do it through our social media uh, at Facebook and Twitter, as Dave was advertising. And we'll get our Instagram up and start running that, I'm yeah. sure. you got to take some nerdy pictures. Um, though, Dave, tell me, what else could they do when someone goes to nerdonomy.com? Well, when you go to nerdonomy.com, if you find it in your hearts and in your wallets to be able to give to the group, you can click on the lovely donate button that is on the website. And no donation is too little. Uh, all the proceeds go to helping the Nerdonomy crew thrive, be it uh, building a legitimate ceiling so we can trap cool air in here, uh, or uh, helping us uh, create the very first Nerdonomy hoverboard, uh, <laughs> or helping us fuel our new endeavors that are coming down the road. But uh, the money goes directly to us. It goes to help producing more content for you guys. So really, when you give us money, you're giving to yourselves. So... You are ensuring quality entertainment. I mean, I don't see a downside to that. I don't see it at all. Now, if you have more money, then that's just a few dollars that you can do through PayPal. You can also help us out by clicking on the audible.com link on the right side of the webpage and sign up for a free trial for Audible and uh, or sign up for a full trial. Just sign up for a membership. I mean, just who do doesn't it. like listening to books? Yeah. I personally am listening to a book right now on tape. Yeah. Uh, and it's great. You drive, you listen, and you get that book out of your way. Who needs to read? And you're probably listening to a podcast while you're driving right now anyway, right? So, I mean, listen to us first. So, listen to us first and then pay. Then listen to your book. Free first. Um, <laughs> now, if, you, if you're like, well, what is this clicking? I, that is too hard for me. I'm going to give you another place you can go. You can go to audibletrial.com forward slash nerdonomy, and you can do... Uh, you can join our thing from there as well. That sounds good to me. Right? I mean... And you know what, nerds? It's that time. Until we meet again, stay nerdy, and tune in to us next week, same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. Goodbye.
<laughs> you should have seen your face. I was all like, ah, CPR. And you're like, ah, you're breaking my ribs. <laughs> but no, we really should get you to a hospital.